Hey, Brian, what you got there? <laughs> oh, this? Just preparing some drinks for our pre-show ritual. Oh, is that a beer? <laughs> why, yes. Uh, why don't you have a sip? A nice big sip. Ah, uh, okay. Mmm. Ah, oh, that's delicious. <laughs> okay, uh, seriously, Brian, what the hell is up with you? Now, Chris, don't get cross. Otherwise, I won't give you the antidote. To what? To the poison you just drank. What? Uh, are you serious? Why the, why the hell would you poison me? Uh, oh, God, what do I do? Ah, April Fools, I'm just joshing you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> funny. Here, let me offer you a beer. I can't think of any reason not to accept that. Desperados and femme fatales of the digital desert, welcome to another rootin' tootin' episode of Digital Noise, right here on oneofus.net. This is the sidewindin' and rewindin' Blu-ray DVD review podcast that always draws first and leaves the lackluster releases in the dust. I have a general Western theme for this one. And know. alliteration. <laughs> that was accidental, <laughs> as it turns out. I'm your host, Brian Salisbury, Blockbuster Video's Most Wanted. And uh, riding shotgun with me is my ombre of ombres, my co-host, Mr. Christopher Lawrence Cox. Well, it's an honor to be here. Now let me tell you about the old times for three hours. <laughs> Sit right down a spell and let me spin you a yarn of yesteryear. Well, you see, it wasn't exactly how the history books said. Let me take you way back to 1984, the day I got caught walking out the door with free movies from Blockbuster. It was me and the VHS gang, and we had just gotten about... Plum tired of not owning our own copies of Buckaroo Banzai and Big Trouble in Little China. Over the horizon, I see my desperate rival, Betamax Burton, <laughs> with his gang of outlaws. Riding in with his team of blue shirts. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. This is what happens when I write the intro based on whatever video game you happen to be playing when I show up. Yep. This is the result of that. I want to remind you guys that Digital Noise, just like all of our content here at One of Us, is available on iTunes. Just search iTunes in the podcast section. You can also follow this show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. That's at D-I-G-I NoiseCast. You can also follow, or you can like, I'm sorry, the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. And please do consider becoming a subscriber. There's a little link we have right there on our front page where you can give anywhere from 2 to $25 a month or just make a one-time donation. I'm telling you guys, we are, we've finalized our incentives. We're going to be doing a video to kind of explain all of that. Good, good stuff. I'm really excited to, uh, to share with you guys and, and make it worth your while to keep supporting us so that we can keep bringing you the content that you love. I'm extremely excited about these announcements, which are not, in fact, happening on this podcast. Oh, you're going to have to wait another day or so. I'm sorry. But for now, it's time to reach out to the Inner Sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes, Torgo, The Letterbox. And our first question comes from Paracinemascopic. 
That is the that is the the Facebook name, Paracinemascopic. Ah, that's a, that's a mouthful, right? That's what she said. That's what she said. Is there an audio commentary that you particularly enjoy listening to over and over again? For me, the answer is absolutely, without question. The Cannibal the Musical commentary. <laughs> in fact, it's gotten to the point where if I put that movie in, I'm probably just going to listen to it with the commentary track more often than I'm actually going to watch the movie by itself. Fair enough. I mean, come on. It's a commentary where the guys go on a beer run halfway through. That's pretty funny. And and Trey gets so uh, basically bitter about this woman that broke up with him and as, that as he gets drunker, he just keeps talking and talking and talking about it. Like, now I'm worth $7 million. Whoops. It's <laughs> hilarious. You know, I rarely listen to the audio commentaries. I, I'm embarrassed to admit it's, I, I would if I didn't do this for a living. I just have so many things to just watch. Yeah. It's like, I don't have time to go back and rewatch stuff with commentary. But the one and solitary exception to that rule is Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, which oh, I've yes. seen so many times on its own. And now when I watch it, I put it on with the commentary, which is known as commentary the musical, where they got all of the cast and crew to perform in a pre-written commentary about the making of Dr. Horrible that is in, in and of itself, a musical. Yeah. And it's really fun. Some of the songs from there are just as memorable as the actual songs from the, 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 the movie thing itself. So, Well, there you have it. Yep. Our next question comes from Jerry Gleason, who asks, what is your favorite bad movie? Hmm, this is hard for me to answer because... I was about to say, aren't yeah. all your favorite movies bad movies? That's Tom? the thing, man. There's there's a lot of movies that uh, most people consider bad that I could, I would and do make cases for being legitimately good. Um, I guess in terms of just like unequivocally bad, but still a lot of fun to watch, I always like Hercules in New York. Huh. Like it's such a biz- like that film should not exist. And I love that the VHS version actually went back and took out the dub. So it's actually Schwarzenegger, like, mouth-farting his way through all of his lines and not understanding what he's saying. And at one point even saying, uh, now remember he's playing Hercules, whose father is Zeus, and saying to someone, my father is a diet. <laughs> it's like, I'm pretty sure that word was deity, and nobody noticed, <laughs> because my father is a diet makes no sense whatsoever. And they just left it. They're just like, oh, we're going like to dub it. over this later. So you get to hear, like, all of these spectacular line flubs, and it's so much fun he's to watch. He's saying that he didn't have a father. The closest he had to a father figure was learning about nutrition. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he, he's basically nursed by the food pyramid. Pretty much, okay, yeah. Okay, got it. <laughs> um, got it. For me, I'm going to stick with musicals here, although I will start off by saying one of my big weaknesses for bad movies is uh, 70s science fiction. Like, just ridiculous, corny, covered with, like, uh, fl- like uh, fluorescent material and people wearing barely any clothes. But it looks like a, a toga's party in space. There's lots of them out there, from the Apple to oh, uh, Zardoz sure. to Logan's Run, what have you. All these movies, although Logan's Run actually is a good movie. But most of these films are not what one would consider a good movie by any stretch of the imagination. For instance, no. we talked about The Visitor recently, yeah, which no. had aspects of that. But the king of all bad 70s sci-fi movies, even though it's only only technically sci-fi, is Olivia Newton-John starring in Xanadu, the greatest movie with roller skating in it ever made. I like Xanadu. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out But there. the one thing you can say about that movie that isn't bad is it has a fucking great soundtrack. Yeah, ELO. Like, no and, question. Yeah, no, but absolutely. the movie is a bad movie. It, it's it's a, an experiment gone horribly awry, for sure. Yeah, uh, but I, I can watch it a hundred times. Yeah, I know. It's It's endlessly watchable, which I think kind of... There's some there's some kind of intrinsic value to that to being able to watch a movie even as 
as bad a movie as something like Xanadu is, like to be able to watch it so often and like kind of get hypnotized by it. Like Seriously. That, that movie's got something going for I it. Mean, that's I'm for sure. I'm sending a message out here to everybody all around the world. I don't know what you might have heard, but all Xanadu <laughs> is a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> And also my my big weakness, uh, I guess both of my movies are going to have the, the word New York in it, but I have a, a, a huge weakness for 80s Italian post-apocalyptic knockoff films. Oh, and Jesus. After the Fall of New York, which is just a blatant ripoff of Escape from New York, is, yeah, that's that's one of my favorites that I go back to a lot. And that is unequivocally a bad film. But B- Bonus points for newer bad movies, Step Up 3D. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, which is a bad movie that's awesome. It is a bad movie full of great dancing. Yeah. Like, absolutely, legitimately powerful and awesome dancing. Yeah, it's a dance version of, like, an 80s Jackie Chan film, where, like, every time they're actually doing motion, mm-hmm. it's amazing, and the rest of it is forgettable and I, stupid. Have you seen the trailer for the fifth one yet? Uh, no. Oh, my God, dude. Not only does it look amazing, it's finally self-aware. Like, there's a line in the trailer where one of them goes, Why does everything keep coming down to a dance battle? <laughs> and I'm just like... Yes, this is what I want to see. This ends up being the one where they all realize they're in a movie and they have to dance well to get back to reality or something like that. That, that would, would be, be amazing. I'm all for that. So. Thank you for your questions, guys. Uh, we will continue to talk about Step Up movies on another show because we love them. Uh, but for now, we're going to get into the reviews. And once again, reminding you that everything we talk about will have a little image here on the page. And if you click on that image, it'll take you to Amazon. Even if you don't buy that particular item, as long as you get to Amazon via our links, whatever you buy benefits the site. And we really do appreciate that. So keep using those links, guys. We we are in your debt. Do it. No, seriously, do it. Do it. Do, do it. it. No, do it. And we're going to start this week with Saving Mr. Banks. Because Mr. Banks needs saving. He's he's in a very dire situation, and we all need to come to his aid as quickly as possible. Actually, a sequel to Cliffhanger? No, it's not. <laughs> it's really not. Uh, this is the one of the more divisive films that came out this past Oscar season. Oddly enough, yeah. Ultimately, while I can totally see that this is not a film that... This was not the best film of the year. There's no question there. There's two... Most of its faults, like, for me, lay in its flashback sequences, which didn't totally work. But that being said, this is a Disney movie embracing everything that like a classic feel good Disney movie is supposed to do for you. Generally speaking, that works more than despite itself. It's almost embarrassing how much this movie worked on me personally. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we're both Disney nerds. Like I I was raised on Disney and, and this movie plays to not only the classic era of Disney behind the scenes stuff, but kind of the magic of the man himself and his ability to create beloved works. And the fact that there were so many people talking critically about this because saying like, come on, these are obviously not really what these people were like. It's like, no, you think? (laughs) And the movie does everything but bear a giant red warning label saying this is a fantasy. I think it would be a rosy colored warning label, really, (laughs) if you think about it. Warning, locks vomit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, I, I that's just not a cris- criticism to me of this film. It knows exactly what it is. It never really tries to pretend it's anything but a fantasy. And it's a Disney film about the making of a Disney film, which right. seems all too appropriate. If you're ever going to Disneyfy anything, this would be the thing you would Disneyfy. Yes. Uh, talking about, of course, specifically the making of Mary Poppins, which was more difficult than you might think since the author, Pamela Travers, was apparently kind of an impossible bitch. She was finicky to the nth degree or an unstoppable bitch. One, whichever term you decide to use. Uh, Emma, Emma Thompson plays her here and she did, she's 
you know, getting up there in age. She's kind of lived off the success of this, of the book, Mary Poppins, but now the success train is running dry. She never wants to license it for anything, but basically she gets told, you're going to lose your house unless you do something. And Walt Disney, played here by Tom Hanks, has been pursuing you for 20 years about this, making this fucking book into a movie. She right. wants no truck with it, but is forced reluctantly to leave her comfortable, stuffy British existence for California and uh, experience the warmth and hospitality of Walt Disney Studios, which to her is like an like the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone. Yeah, I can kind of under like it's clear from the get go that there is some kind of deeper connection to this character and this material that makes her hesitant to give it up to kind of relinquish the rights to it. But I mean, as as hokey as the flashbacks were, I'm glad they were there, if only to humanize her a little bit. Because I'm sorry, like when she starts complaining about everything in California and desperate to go back to rainy, dreary London, I was just like. I don't know how I'm going to get behind this woman. I really don't. I, I'm I'm nervous about this. Yeah, she has a miserable life, and here she is being. I mean, I I know what it's like, and I've seen what it's like with people who have just built themselves into this cynical castle of their own design, with their staring over the sides at happy people and going, "You can't come in. You're you're being happy just to spite me." And she's one of those type of people. Castles websites, whatever. You I mean, know. <laughs> and like, if you take a person like that and put them in the happiest place on earth, as it were, yeah, it's, it's the worst thing that could happen to her. But we slowly watch her reserves getting broken down bit by bit by the magic of Disney. He's just, he's got the magic touch. Which is, of course, all bullshit. It didn't happen anything like this. But once again, who cares? Because as a story, as a film to watch, this is thoroughly enjoyable fare. And the, the un, you know, the, the, the fact that you really can, the incontrovertible fact here is that Walt Disney was good at creating, you know, magic, at, at creating these films that would live on long after he was gone and really like delving into the heart of, of, you know, the, the child in all of us. Like that was something he was good at, you know, historically. So yeah, there may be a fudging of a detail here or there, but it's like the essence of, of Walt Disney and, and Tom Hanks' performance, like that's, that's undeniable. He nails it. Yeah. Uh, Emma Roberts, uh, I see Emma Roberts. Emma Thompson is the real star here, though, who just pulls in an amazing and hysterical performance as a curmudgeonly Travers. But I've got, you can't not mention the uh, three people who have to work with her and put up with her bullshit in the most. Bradley Whitford, uh, Jason Schwartzman, and BJ Novak, who are a riot as they're just trying their hardest to be polite yeah. to the most difficult person to work with on the planet. If you're if you're as much of a Disney nerd as we are, uh, all you have to say is that Schwartzman and uh, BJ Novak are playing the, the Sherman brothers. And it's like, oh my God. Like I, <laughs> When I heard that, I was like, okay, now I really, really, really want to see this movie. One of the, you know, really heart-melting yeah, scenes in this is where everybody gets sucked into the energy of let's singing and practice rehearsing Let's Go Fly a Kite, which yes. is one of the greatest Disney songs and moments in one of their films ever. And in fact, one of the bonus features on here actually uh, shows uh, the Mary Poppins co-songwriter, the real Richard Sermon, uh, leading a round of Let's Go Fly a Kite with the cast and crew on the last day of filming. So that's like, oh Amazing. man, that's, that's a pretty awesome bonus feature to throw on here. Definitely was, definitely was. But yeah, overall, I think... It, the, if the movie stumbles, it's in the flashback stuff and the flashback yeah. stuff getting so ham-fisted with basically trying to decipher the mystery of every little significant nuance of her life. Like, why doesn't she like pears? And when you get the real reason why she doesn't like pears, it's like, I don't think that was really necessary. It's, to. It's too much. Yeah, we don't need to understand every little thing about her. Like, why does she cross her legs this way? Why does she write... You know, with red pen. They Why did you just give her a whole season of Lost, for Christ's sake, <laughs> and we're going to do it that way. 
Yeah. No, it was it was a little much. It was a little much. Uh, but there's seven minutes of deleted scenes as well as a 15 minute. Uh, take a look at the, the the basically it's called from Poppins to the present. So it's sort of back and forth from the original to this and how it got made. Yada yada. It's trying to make Poppins fresh. That's what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. But yeah, overall the the movie and and you know it looks great and some of the special features. Of, I you know I give this a high recommendation. Oh, totally. Overall. It's it is not for the hard hearted though. That is very true. <laughs> it's not it's not going to reverse your cynicism if you, if you're already no. kind of cynical to the point that you you turn your nose up at Disney and all you think of them now is like this big soulless corporation that they you know admittedly have become <laughs> this is not a movie for you yeah it's a fantasy you're either going to go with it or you're not but you have to be one of those people that that can when it's a well done soft touch triacle film you can get into it and this is a very well done one agreed well from there we're going to talk about the great beauty and then the great beast what is that not what this is? That's not. I don't know, even know what you're referencing. I don't know. What is The Great Beauty? The Chris? Great Beauty is one of the two Criterion releases we'll be talking about this week. Ooh. This was the Golden Globe, the BAFTA, and the Oscar winner for Best Foreign Language Film. Well, BAFTA for, for not foreign language. because Well, no, actually, yeah, it was BAFTA. Yeah, BAFTA is British. I'm film sorry, because film. this is an Italian film directed by relatively young Paolo Sorrentino, who apparently is a big Fellini fan. Some people have actually credited this is flat out just a tribute to Fellini, even though he has said, well, of course he's an influence, but no, It's just called nine. <laughs> no, 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 it is not. <laughs> 9.2. 9.2. This is one of the most gorgeous looking films I've seen, quite frankly, in as long as I can remember. The cinematography of this thing in the first 30 seconds starts knocking you out of your seat, and it just doesn't let up for the entire film. Just one thing after another of just haunting, astonishing beauty from photography. I mean, it doesn't hurt the fact the whole thing is set in Rome. This is almost the sort of like, uh, like a love letter to that city with a, that a love letter that ends up in an angry breakup because <laughs> wow. ultimately this is about loving Rome and it's about the decay of Rome. And it follows uh, a guy who is uh, Jeb, Jeb Gambardella uh, played by Tony Servillo is a classic Italian actor who was, he's a writer who wrote a book that was received in enormously well, something like 40 years ago. But, you know, I mean, it was like his catcher in the rye. Like, everybody okay. knew it. Everybody loved it. And it was the only thing he wrote, other than occasionally writing reviews and stuff for journals and things. It's the only book he wrote. But he still, all these years, has been living off the success of that as sort of the ultimate host of the party. He's the guy that your party is, in fact... You know, it didn't work if he didn't show up. Ah. One of those type guys. And he's gotten to that age now that, like, while he still indulges in this lifestyle, going from party to party, and boy, these old people party in a big way in, in Rome, <laughs> is all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, he's also tired of it. And he's kind of gotten to the point where he's, like, he's accepted his lot and hasn't. It's very much a sort of, like, it's not even midlife crisis. He's post that. I mean, the guy's, like, turning 65 when the movie starts. Okay. But it's he's both sad and happy. He's both full of... He's sappy. He's both full of regret and doesn't have any regrets. He's both likes, loves his friends, and can't stand them. And it's that interesting point where he's like, look, we are, we're all pieces of shit. But the key to being happy is forgiving you and everybody else for being a piece of shit. (laughs) 
and sort wow. of it's like watching the modern day fall room to him it's like everything is beautiful it's true but these are just distractions from what the real beauty that i don't even know what it is what was the point of all this? All these distractions. Yeah, it's beautiful, but what for? We're sitting there watching the, you know, there's a sequence where he's, he's leading this woman, uh, with a friend who's got keys to every secret place in the city through these hidden museums that the public aren't allowed into these, all these amazing treasures of art that nobody gets to see. In fact, there's some ancient princesses sitting there playing cards in the dark, not even paying attention to what's going on. And the whole thing is not, it's not surreal. It's just a mildly abstract and very non, uh, linear. No, it's linear. It just, it's non-narrative format. Oh, okay. It's, it's telling a story, but in a very sort of like you have to read between the lines of what's happening as this guy encounters a lot of people, uh, that he knows already, um, and has various strange react re- relationships with them that sort of lead one into his philosophy and his way of thinking. So it's not your, the, it's not your normal type of movie, if you will, but honestly, there's not a frame of this thing that just won't take your breath away with how goddamn gorgeous it is. And yes, I could follow what was going on completely. It's just not a story. It's more about, like I said, a frame of mind, a thought, trying to get to establish a philosophy about existence, about this point of a time in Rome. It's, it's just phenomenal. It really is. And, and obviously not for everybody, but, <laughs> but I wish you had a chance to see this in the theater. I wish I had gotten a chance to see it in the theater. It's, I mean, the imagery is just so unforgettable. And, uh, and of course, being a Criterion edition, it's packed with extra features, including a conversation with the director, uh, interview with the, the Italian actor, Tony Servillo, who plays the lead role on here, uh, interview with the screenwriter, uh, d- some deleted scenes, and of course, a booklet with an essay about the film and what it means to the one critic, uh, Philip Lopat, who, uh, talks about it. But yeah. This is, if you're interested in photography or cinematography at all, this is one of those movies you're going to want to go way out of your way for to check out. It's just, just amazing. So that is The Great Beauty. Now, you mentioned another uh, Criterion release. That is The Freshman, I believe. Yes. yes. Well, this one, let me just say, is my pick of the week. Okay. I, I really, I was just so, I almost overwhelmed by buy it at points how incredible i thought this really was but uh the other one is also of course we're talking about you know it's criterion they don't put out a lot of shit (laughs) and sure enough this is one of the probably one of the two best harold lloyd films this one is the freshman recently reviewed the other one which which you you saw uh which was uh Oh, uh, Safety Last. Safety Last was yeah. generally considered the other greatest Harold Lloyd film. Harold Lloyd was, of course, a compatriot in the 20s uh, of – not compatriot, but uh, another actor on the same level as Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and gotcha. those types in the silent <clears throat> film era yeah. who was doing those type of comedies, except – it's interesting. The one difference between him and those guys are – like they're always guys who are striving for something more. With Chaplin, it's usually love. Um, with Lloyd uh, – all the other guys always have this sort of cynicism about success. Lloyd is the only one who doesn't. His films are interesting that it's a guy who strives for success and then finds the key to it and, but remains innocent throughout and manages to achieve what he was going for. And along with lots of great physical stunts and comedy and really good stuff. Sure. The Freshman is apparently considered to be one of the most influential films of all time in, in as such that almost every college movie after it has copied and borrowed stuff from it. And it really was the first, 
you know, new guy in college trying to be successful but being picked on by everybody movie. Uh, it came out in 1925, or Harold Lloyd indeed. He's watched this film that's uh, about a guy in college who's all, who, who becomes, you know, the, most popular guy on campus, and he's decided that's going to be him. He is going to be this guy. Unfortunately, he's a mess. <laughs> and just is in a series of encounters embarrasses himself, but to in the sort of way that makes so, so many people laugh that they kind of like him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the college boob, but they always welcome around him around because you never know what stupid thing this guy's going to do that's hysterical. <laughs> uh, and he doesn't realize it. He thinks everybody just loves him genuinely. He can't figure it out. There's a girl who's uh, in the same building as him who he falls in love with, yada, yada, yada. She's the one person who knows what's really going on but can't bear to break his heart. And, of course, it all culminates eventually with the final big football game where he's been allowed to – you know, be a player, but he's really the water boy. He just doesn't realize it. And all the other players are knocked out. And what happens? They've got to let him go on the field. (laughs) A really fun movie. It's only about an hour and 16 minutes long, but it still is funny and really holds up. The football game is great. And there's also the scene where he's at a dance and uh, the tailor didn't get his tuxedo done in time. He's like, look, all the threads are barely holding together, so you got to be really careful, but I'll come with you, so if anything falls off, I'll sew it together. So the tailor is hiding behind this curtain, and and he'll something will come off, and he'll keep having to go like dance with someone while putting his arm through the curtain while the tailor <laughs> sews his like, arm sleeve back on or whatever. It's really <laughs> funny stuff. Uh, once again, being Criterion loaded down with bonus features, including, of course, uh, the booklet that you expect. Uh, Lots and lots of conversations about Harold Lloyd from various different people, including uh, including from Harold Lloyd himself, who uh, was a celebrity until his death. It's just we don't hear that much about him now, strangely, but he was one of those guys who was just venerated like crazy decades after uh, his silent career was was over and he wasn't really doing movies anymore, including a really fun episode of What's My Line, in which he was the mystery guest that people like Steve Allen had to figure out who he was. Uh, and there's three short films on here, uh, audio commentary from a film historian. There's a, a, a lot of stuff that makes this worthwhile. And one of the best collections that is also a tribute to the performer I've seen yet from the criteria online. I mean, there's uh, one of the sequences on here is, is like a 30 minute thing that Lloyd puts together himself uh, called funny side of life. That was uh, an introduction to the freshmen when they re-released it in theaters that Mm -hmm. would interstitially throw in bits that were sort of montages of the best moments from his other movies. It's really cool stuff. Right on. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go completely rogue and I'm going to add a title that I forgot to send you, oh. which is actually a third Criterion release. We have three Criterion releases this week, guys. And the third one, which also came out in the month of March, was Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. Now, you probably know this movie for one of two reasons. One is that you're just a big Kurosawa fan and you watch all of his films, which is admirable. Or the other is that you have heard the uh, the long-standing rumor that George Lucas borrowed heavily from this film to make Star Wars. And that rumor is entirely true, and he did. It's very, very much apparent all through this movie. This is, uh, this is the story of two peasants who are transporting, uh, a couple of folks across enemy lines, not knowing that these two folks are actually a defeated general and a princess. Said the Paul and Autodetto. Yes, said to, yes. you and, uh, Uh, yeah. Yeah, the peasants are entirely kind of the, the basis of, 
C3PO and R2D2 uh in Star Wars and there's lots of other things here throughout that you will you'll notice and go oh, that kind of feels like the plot of specifically I'm talking about the very first Star Wars film um of course, a new hope a new hope yes as it came to be known um so and what's what's a lot of fun about this movie is that it is it does kind of blend these elements of sort of like mistaken identity comedy and it's still an adventure movie and it's it's a lot of fun and I don't feel like it's really lo- like there are some things about it that feel a little dated, but overall, I think this is the kind of film that you could show people easily today, and they would still enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, and I, I, it's it's not my favorite, honestly, Kurosawa film. Not only anybody calls it their favorite but, one, but it is it is far better than just being. I think I think a lot of people just know it as oh, it's that movie that inspired Star Wars, and I think it deserves a little more credit than that. I think as a film itself, there are a lot of really fun elements to it. I think the the two peasants are are phenomenal in their performances. Uh, and this is notable, and, and what, the reason I really love the Criterion put this out on Blu-ray, this is the first film that Kurosawa ever f- shot in widescreen. Mm-hmm. So seeing it in this format, seeing it with the high-def treatment, with these really, really sharp uh, and, and, and vivid picture elements that are just kind of popping off the screen, I mean, they did a really good job with this. This is a, uh, uh, not a 4K, but a 2K transfer, I believe. <laughs> and I think Criterion did an amazing job with it, and it's it was so nice to be able to see this movie, you know, all cleaned up and in widescreen, because the thing about Kurosawa is, like, all of his movies feel larger than life. All of the, the way he shoots landscapes, and, you know, he can make any any portion of Japan feel like another planet. I mean, he really just has that kind of, like, larger-than-life scope to to his work and to his, uh, his eye for cinematography, so it's really nice to see that, uh, again, in this Blu-ray format and, and in what he called... Uh, I think it was Toho Scope, I believe is what they yeah, ended up calling so. it. Um, but yeah, so I, I really, really enjoyed this. And it's got some really great special features, a couple of which are, uh, exclusive to this particular Blu-ray release. One is a, a brand new commentary, uh, with a film historian, uh, his last name is Prince. I can't Stephen remember. Stephen Prince. Stephen Prince. Um, so there's a lot to, there's a lot to glean from that commentary. Uh, there's a documentary. Uh, called It's Wonderful to, Akira Kurosawa, It's Wonderful to Create, uh, it's, it's, which is really great. And then there is an, this was on the DVD, but it's really fascinating, is George Lucas talking about Akira Kurosawa. And this is where he talks a lot about what he took from Hidden Fortress and how that kind of informed the plot of Star Wars. As well as the screen wipes. Yeah. That was a big thing that he took from, from this film and Kurosawa in general was yeah. the, the specific way that he would do the screen wipes with the motion on screen would sort of go with the screen wipe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that's, that's a very distinctive part of both films. So that's, that's, yeah, I, I like that he did that. But yeah, I think overall, this is one of those movies that if you are someone who really embraces the history of film, uh, as well as like, you know, that, that wants something entertaining, like it, it's, this weird sort of relationship we have where a lot of the films that we watch because they're important to cinema history aren't always the most entertaining affair. Like there are movies we watch because of what they are more than, Hey, I would really love to watch this right sure. now. Like 2001, for example, like there's never going to be a day where I'm going to be like, Oh, I want to be entertained today. I think I'll pop on 2001. <laughs> uh, but, but this film I think does a much better job of, you know, in terms of, and not like it was trying to do this, but, uh, from a collector's standpoint, if you know you're a collector of of media, it's it's a movie that really walks that line well, being important historically and also pretty entertaining. Cool. So that is the Hidden Fortress. Which see if you can find it. See if you can find it. <laughs> <laughs>
I get it. Well, from there, we're going to talk about Chinese Zodiac. Yeah, why not? Because why not? We talked a little bit ago about Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton. Why not talk about Jackie Chan, who has it said many times that he owes his entire career, specifically to Buster Keaton, but certainly to people like Chaplin and Lloyd, as the great men who invented doing sort of stunt cinema work, like yeah. making the stuntman the primary character. And Jackie's getting a little old. Isn't now, Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't this supposed to be Jackie Chan's last movie? You know... There was some amount of announcement about that, but now it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. So he is retiring in the same way that, like, Jordan retired the first time. Look, Chan is one of those guys that knows if he retires, he's going to turn to dust, I think. And he's just, he doesn't want to stop working. He may say this is, he may have said this is the last film, but as far as I know, he's already working on something else. But this did, in fact, give him two Guinness World Records with the, for the most stunts performed by a living actor in his career, apparently. I'm surprised it took this long. I'm surprised he's still a living actor, <laughs> uh, frankly. And the most credits for one movie. <laughs> <laughs> he did pretty much everything. Um, wow. And, you know, th this was a huge hit at the Chinese box office. Um, it won Best Action Choreography at the 32nd Hong Kong Film Award. Uh, it even did uh, moderately okay <laughs> with a limited American release, which is this is sadly the re-edited version that uses all dubbing. Jet Chan, of course, dubs his own voice, so even though it's not matched up perfectly, at least it's actually Jackie Chan talking, as That's it always something. is for the dubs. But, you know, a lot of this you could tell was done, it, there was a lot of English speaking in this anyway, there's a lot of English actors in this, even Oliver Platt, who plays one of the villains here. Um, this is, for all extents and purposes, a remake of Armor of God, if you've ever seen that, Operation Condor, which okay. is a sequel, um, like where it's, he's a thief slash adventurer who goes after artifacts type things. They called it that. It's not really a remake in any way other than that it's the same character, more or less, just going after a completely different set of stuff. And audiences had a mixed reaction, and I think that's the, overseas, and I think that's partially because at this point, the little jaded, we're, you know, they watch a lot of, seen a lot of Jackie Chan films, and this movie makes the mistake at the end of having a montage of some of the best scenes from Jackie Chan movies in his whole career. Because they really did think it was, he was going to be retiring after yeah. this. Yeah. And, you know, you're watching this going, no, these action scenes are great during this movie, and they are. But when you compare them to like watching, you know, Drunken Master and Dragons Forever and stuff like that, you're like, oh, yeah, he's slowed down a lot. <laughs> uh, the best scene in here is what it starts out with, which is where he's got a full body wheel suit. Like there's oh, wheels shit. all over his body and he's going down. He's being chased by Russians with machine guns and motorcycles and stuff. And he's just going down, you know, tunnels and, and down, down this huge downhill curvy road down a mountain. He's and luging. It's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> it's like, wow, that, that's a neat idea. And sadly, that is indeed the strongest part of this whole film. The humor doesn't really work as you might expect as he and several other people end up looking for these stolen relics by this giant corporation. Uh, but it's never boring and there's a lot of good fights in it. It's not what you were ever, anyone would ever put on the best of Jackie Chan, but hell, I had a really good time watching it nonetheless. Um, Chan, no matter how old he gets, he always has that quality of like, you just want to like the guy. He's so charismatic. And sure. That's no different here. There is a lot of fun stuff in this movie. Um, there's points you can tell sadly that they have sped things up a little or overused editing or even substituted a stuntman for Jackie at points, which are things 
He never used to do. But like I said, he's in his 60s, for God's sakes. I mean, right. he looks better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> he looks but, better than most of us do. But then again, I couldn't have done anything in his movie. He could be 90 and I couldn't do the stuff he's going to do then, <laughs> which I should assumably he'll still be making movies at that point. But yeah, um, I, I do recommend this. I think it is fun. But just be warned, this is no one's ever going to call this, like I said, the best of the Jackie Chan collection. Fair enough. Well, that is Chinese Zodiac. And from there, why don't we talk about The Wolf of Wall Street? Oh, I never heard of that. What is that? Uh, it's uh, Warren Zevin decided to direct this movie. Oh. Werewolves of Wall Street. Werewolves of Wall Street. <laughs> do, 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 do. No. This no. is, of course, the uh, Martin Scorsese film that got nominated for everything but didn't win anything this year at the Oscars. And I'm not surprised because this is a great movie made for people who like really dirty films. <laughs> it's yeah. for grown-ups and grown-ups who don't mind a hard, 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 hard R rated film which i mean to be fair most of scorsese's movies would qualify as hard r for one reason or another but this yeah i i mean i'm not going to sit here and try to to decipher the mentality of the academy voting board because i clearly am not in line with their thinking and haven't been for a very long time yeah but that being said i really really enjoyed this film oh yeah <laughs> it, it is one of those rare there are very few directors who I can hear, this is a three-and-a-half-hour movie, and go, absolutely, sign me up. Martin Scorsese is one of the very, very, very few directors that I I will give a complete pass to when it comes to runtime. Because normally my rule is 90 minutes, period. But, uh, but yeah, w when I heard that Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street was like three-and-a-half hours, I was like, okay, I'm in. Yeah, the final running time for theaters was 179 minutes. Oh, so it's three hours. Cut down from four hours. Oh, okay. Now... I, it's a Scorsese film. And when I watched this movie, while I still thought it was a little overlong, I still thought there was bits that could have been trimmed. It's one of those, it's a comedy and three hours is a long time for a comedy, but it's also has all that great Goodfellas-ish type story building things. You know, the little guy taste for power becomes powerful, becomes, com you know, just the worst kind of corrupt douchebag ends up being brought down, uh, it's, I mean, it's, that's what Scorsese does best yeah. a lot of times is sort of a rise and fall story. In fact, I think it's great that in The Departed, one of the, I think one of, uh, Scorsese's most self-referential moments is when Leonardo DiCaprio says in The Departed, families are always rising and falling in America. And it's like, yeah, and usually Scorsese's there to document yeah, he's it. he's the guy who makes the movie about it. <laughs> uh, in fact, this is about a, a real guy, Jordan Belfort, who in, is the w worst kind of Wall Street criminal, ultimately, yeah. uh, without going into ridiculously unnecessary details at this point. Basically, he ripped off a lot of people to make a massive amount of money for him and his buddies in a very short period of time, started living like a crazy king from history just doing yes just insane the marquis parties. de sade i believe yeah, right uh and ultimately got brought down by his own exuberance and and expenditures uh, leonardo dicaprio is wonderful in this shows a rare quality you see of him of being able to do slapstick comedy at points which is his yes he's really good at yeah there there is one i think we've talked about it before but the quaalude scene in this movie with him oh, and yeah. jonah hill was one of the single funniest moments of last year in oh, yeah. cinema absolutely no question yeah and jonah hill very good name do you know he he took the lowest scale you can take as a SAG actor, $60,000 to do this. 
Yeah, which I know a lot of us are like, oh, it's still 60. It's like, yeah, but you have to understand, like, these actors by now are making way more than that. But that is a testament to the power of Martin Scorsese is people are willing to take scale to be in his films. That was it for him. He was like, I want to work with Scorsese. I want to work with Leo DiCaprio, who made $10 for making this. But, of course, he's Leo. He can. When you want Leo, you got to pay to get Leo, even if you are Martin Scorsese. But – you know, there's such a huge cast in this thing. It's not surprising that, that they didn't have but so much money afterwards to throw around. Matthew McConaughey has a wonderful small role in this. Rob Reiner does as well. John Bernthal, John Favreau, Jean Dujardin, uh, uh, Shea Wiggum. Shea Wiggum. <laughs> almost said it. Wrong. Almost, almost. <laughs> I'm determined. Uh, uh, Spike Jones, uh, uh, oh God, what's his name? Um, Ah, uh, why am I forgetting? Ethan Suppley. Yes, yes, thank you. Lots of, you'll recognize almost everybody in this film, but you gotta hand it out to, uh, Margot Robbie, who I was totally unfamiliar with before this film, who plays his, like, ultimately the woman he meets, who he's like, this is the perfect woman I got. His trophy have her. wife. Because she is gorgeous, she's really incredible in this role, and she stays naked through large portions of it, which had to be a, frightening as hell thing knowing all of america was going to see this fucking film yeah <laughs> well to to be fair when chris says she's incredible in this role he means she's naked throughout the well entire. no she really is <laughs> i know i'm kidding so. uh, I, I had never heard of her really outside of like about time which she didn't stand out for me in uh here yeah she stands out in a very literal way sadly this is the very definition of, oh, be prepared to double dip if you buy this. Yeah, that's kind of lame. Because they put this out as the theatrical edition, despite having promised that on Blu-ray, this was going to come out with the four-hour director's cut edition that Scorsese stood by and insisted is the better version. Which will be the version that comes out in, like, six months. Yeah. And, in fact, this also only has one supplement, 17-minute extra called The Wolf Pack, which is just an examination. It's a making, a brief making of. Uh That's not very much considering how big this film was. This yeah. obviously deserves... uh a much more prestigious release than this. And I'm sure it's going to get, there's no question it's going to get one. It's just a matter of time. I mean, and you may not be huge into supplements, but if there is one director who I want to be there every step of the way to watch, you know, every finite detail of his craft, it's Scorsese. Yep. There should be a hundred supplements about every fucking scene. Like this like guy I, is a master. They'll put out a hard digit book of this thing that comes with three Blu-ray discs and what have you and a DVD and an ultra disc and a, a bag of Quaaludes commentary with your mom saying, how can you watch this trash? <laughs> <laughs> your mom. They will get your specific mom to yep. do it. That's how it'll cost, but it'll, yeah. it'll cost. <laughs> it'll be an expensive Blu-ray, but yeah, they will actually get your mom, even if she's dead to come and do it. I just imagine somebody out there going like, you, you show me a commentary with my mom on it. I'll quit my job job right now because because of the line in the movie bang you got it bang you got it yeah it's sad because if this had been that edition you know the one with the four hour and with reasonable extras this probably would have been my pick of the week because it's such a great movie but as it is it's just one of those annoying man paramount you guys are greedy (laughs) (laughs) you are quite greedy well from there we're going to move on to uh, our scream factory release of the week which is beneath now uh Beneath is it's interesting because you know when I first heard, uh, well let me let me just put it this way when it showed up at my house because we review pretty much everything Screen Factory puts out more or less I naturally assumed it was an older film 
yeah. because that's what Scream Factory does. Yeah. And I pop this thing in and I'm like, oh no, this is like within the last year this has been made. Made for the Chiller channel, which in and of itself is like, oh it's, fuck. It's a bit it's a bit troubling. Now, I will say that I didn't recognize the name Larry Fessenden immediately. It sounded familiar, but that was about it. Larry Fessenden has basically been involved with every great festival horror film of the last, like, five years. I'm serious. Like, you run down his resume. As an actor more than anything. Well, as an actor, as a, as a lot of things. Like, the last winter he was in. Uh, I, what's that? Wendigo. Yeah, I, I Sell the Dead. Um, Stakeland, You're Next, uh, you know, just all of these movies that, you know, we have seen at festival, the session nine, for God's sake, back in 2001. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of, and you're right, mostly as an actor, uh, he has, he has produced some of these movies as well, and he directed The Last Winter. So suddenly I'm like, okay, now I'm intrigued. And what we get from this film is a, it's, it's very much a throwback to the old school. And by that, I mean, like, they make this very conscious decision it's a movie essentially about a killer fish. So <laughs> right out of the gate, it's like, okay, we're we're going back to B-movie, and we're going to make a movie about yeah, killer both fish. Both the cover and the first shot in this film, like, tip their hat off the Jaws right yeah. off the bat and go, yep, that's just get ready for something that loves Jaws. Yeah, absolutely. But they make the conscious decision to do the monster entirely practically. And I know that there are going to be people that watch this and see this monster go, well, that looks really silly. But to me, that was the big selling point of this film. I'd much rather see a not completely convincing practical giant monster like this than than a totally the fake CG digital one you see in every single other TV channel horror made for TV horror movie. Yeah, yeah, any day of the week. And I, I actually really liked the design of this particular fish, and it had a it had a scale to it, but the way it moved was really interesting because it had a scale. To ah, it? G- 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 that was accidental. I'm doing this in my sleep now. Um, but the way <laughs> it moved, telling another fish story, telling another fish story. Oh, I'm gonna reel them in with that one. Uh, but yeah, like <laughs> don't bait them. <laughs> All right, Finn. Um, so <laughs> that was French. <laughs> What the hell was I talking about? Oh, the way it moved. Yeah, it was really interesting because it could like double back and you could actually watch its progress in the water. And it kind of made it a little more tense because it wasn't one of those things that they could just like digitally render it out and it would hide forever. It was like you could see it in the water moving around. It had like a part of an oar stuck in it. So it's like the whole time you knew where this fish was and you still couldn't do anything about it, which I thought was an interesting concept. And what gives rise to sort of the secondary storyline of the film, which is really more of its narrative heart is like this social psychology experiment of these people in a boat realizing that they're not all going to make it and maybe some of them have to be sacrificed so the others can get away and it becomes sort of like a Lord of the Flies situation. Or a rope or lifeboat or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, lifeboat, yeah, is probably a better example. And that's the thing for me with this movie, whereas I thought the, the stuff with the actual fish on film actually was fun and cool and worked. And I admired the attempt to do something like Hitchcock. But it didn't work for me at all. No, that I'm not. Yeah, you're right. That doesn't work. I'm I'm just saying that that was kind of where what the narrative like center of the movie was. Yeah, it was a it was a good attempt. It was more than any of these type of movies almost ever is ambitious enough to try to do. And your my hat is completely off for this, for Larry Fessenden. 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 Yeah. Fessenden. He's the guy that gets killed at the beginning of your next. In case anyone needs a (laughs) visual yes visual benchmark. Uh. You know, I mean, p- points for trying, but definitely 
it just it makes me sad that this is an almost ran of a film. Really, I, I agree with you. There, I I was really hoping for more. I thought it laid the foundation very well, and it's just the execution was not there. And I think a lot of it has to do with they're just not the strongest of actors, and they make decisions that just don't make any sense in the context of the setup they built. In the like, con- right. Why are you sacrificing? It's like even when you're you're theoretically throwing people overboard so they can distract the fish. Yeah. So they can row a little bit to get towards shore. Never mind the fact that the shore appears to be about, you know, I mean, it's, you can make out details on it. It's so close on either side. And you're yeah. like, look, I've been in a boat. I've rowed a boat. You would have been there already. <laughs> row, row, row your boat slightly faster, morons. Seriously. No, I, just, no, I agree with no. you. And, and, and you're right to say within the context of what it's set up that it's, cause I mean, there's a lot of horror movies you watch and you're like, why would you ever do that? It's like, well, you would do that within, like, I got really tired of people watching the movie Frozen and be like, who would ever do that? I'm like, someone whose life is going to end if they don't. Yeah. Like, you you know, there's a lot of times it's like from our ivory tower, we can judge people's decisions. But even within the context of the story that the movie sets up, one of the things that really bugged me is every time somebody would jump out of the boat and try to swim for shore, try to make it, the shore was right behind them and they would jump the other way. Yeah. I'm like, it's, 13 feet to shore this way. Why are you trying to cross the other way across the lake? They just, there was that point early on, you went, these people are too stupid to live anyway. Yes. I just don't care what and, happens to them. And I take particular exception to how douchey they made the film nerd character in this movie. Like, yeah. he was the biggest asshole. Like, you have two jocks in the movie who aren't as big an asshole as the movie geek character. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you, movie. That's not cool. I don't like that. Yeah. And the, the central conceit eventually, which is sort of a, a love quadrangle. It's so, you just, you hate the girl. You hate everyone who wants her attention except for this one character only because he's the least douchey of everyone. Yeah. You're like, you're still a douche. Like they're all mad at him because he's the one guy who, who knows and believes there's a fish monster in this lake. And I'm sorry, how his story wraps up pissed me off so much. I was like, really? Yeah. That just happened? And Come on. Yeah, and they basically just don't give him anything else to say after that for the rest of the film. Yeah. Like, uh, this is, yeah, just very poorly written stuff with characters. Uh, Cool-looking movie. It should have been better. It's it's a question of, one, I understand that it's super low budget, which is probably why they couldn't afford high caliber of actors. But it's really the writing, I think, that that screws this movie oh, up. Oh, yeah. So I think Fessenden still got some chops. I know if you guys haven't seen Last Winter, Last Winter is a very cool movie. Uh, and I've I, not seen it, actually. It's, it's, I saw it at Fantastic Fest like three or four. At least I don't think I did. I and it's, it's, really, it's a really cool movie. I think Fessenden still got some chops. I just don't think that this is a good example of that. And I don't think this is going to be a film that holds a lot of people's attention. And I really don't understand why Shout Factory <laughs> made this part of the Scream Factory. Because they've released stuff that's chiller channel stuff before yeah. separate from scream factory. I don't really understand this crossover. There was some positive feedback on this film. There was a, so definitely a, a sort of groundswell of support from them. People saying, no, this actually is a pretty good movie. It's not, it's just got some good, pretty good stuff about it, but ultimately it's not a good movie. There's certainly a lot of bonus features here though, for a movie that's so minor. Uh, there, okay, let me, yeah, let's, let's put it in this context. There are, let's see, six times the amount of features on this than there was on Wolf of Wall Street. What can you do? Do with that information what you will. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway, that's enough about this movie. The best it's, thing I can say about Beneath is that uh, Hector from Breaking Bad shows up. Briefly. 
There you go. Yeah. That's the best thing I can say. We should move on. This movie is beneath us. I agree. So why don't we talk about Avengers Confidential, which I, I believe thought is... we were talking about stuff that wasn't beneath us. Oh, wow. Is it that bad? Well, look. There's this, <laughs> there's this company called Madhouse. I'm so glad there's a preface to this. <laughs> there's this company called Madhouse. And what they, they're a Japanese animation studio formed in the 70s with, you know, some people who were pretty big at the time. They've certainly done some interesting things along the, the way. I don't know anything about the, the formal anime-based stuff that they do in Japan. I really – I don't know anything about it. But I do know they've been known for being guys to do adaptations of American stuff like into anime. And two of the ones they did, they did that Iron Man one, Rise of the Technovore. Oh, was yeah. terrible. Not great. And this one, Avengers Confidential, Black Widow, and Punisher, which is not as terrible by any stretch of the imagination as the Iron Man one, still – not good. Not as terrible. <laughs> Not as job. terrible. Uh, the strong point here is really just the, uh, whenever it's on screen conversation between Black Widow, uh, played here by Jennifer Carpenter from Dexter and Punisher, played by popular voice actor Brian Bloom. Uh, and because when you think about it, these characters actually do have a lot in common, really. They're both two powerless, uh, Marvel characters that have gotten by completely on you know, just determination and building a set of skills and hardware. You know, I mean, they, and that, and they're both completely broken inside. <laughs> they both have like terrible pasts that led them to become who they are. And this really tries to tread on that to a certain extent. Unfortunately, it never gets any deeper than that little Stanley written intro at the beginning of any comic book written in the eighties, seventies or eighties was, you know, it's just, there's not practically no depth to this at all. And in here, uh, Punisher is taken into shield custody by a terribly voiced Nick Fury. Uh, just really like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, to, after he interferes in a top secret mission, an exchange for his release, Punisher and Black Widow team up to take down this terrorist arms dealing organization named Leviathan that comes out of Russia or somewhere who've stolen, <laughs> auctioning stolen shield technology and building super soldiers based on the, the Hulk's blood. And it's one of those like, like the main guy ends up like being like a dude who Black Widow was in love with at one point. And so there's all this hand wringing about like, oh, I only did this and took this formula that I made and faked my own death because I realized I wasn't worthy of your love just being a lowly scientist, which is okay, whatever. What? And it just goes on and on like what? that. Uh And he's like a near unbeatable, this guy, even though he's taken the exact same formula that these thousands of soldiers they built that when the time comes for the guys to confront them, they pretty much take them down with knee shots. <laughs> Just like one after another. Mm. They make the stormtroopers look like Delta Force. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that movie. <laughs> Stormtrooper, Delta Force. I mean, they threw in a lot of cameos. Like when it gets towards the end, there's a pretty big fight that involves Captain Marvel, Thor, War Machine, Hawkeye, uh, Grim Reaper, Graviton, Griffin, Taskmaster, Baron Zemo, uh, Iron Man, there's, you name it, a ton of heroes appear towards the Hulk. And that part actually gets kind of fun and cool for what it's worth. But ultimately, this is like nothing you haven't seen before and done in that sort of like anime. Kids like anime, right? So let's do this like anime mm. that just is so pandering, it feels mm. like, to do it that way. 
Uh, and God knows the two extra features on here with Joe Casada being as irritating as he usually is. Like, ah, oh, this is great because anime, everybody loves anime and everybody loves these characters. Who doesn't want to see Black Widow and Punisher fight? Shut the fuck up. Just watch the, give it to your 12 year old anime fan kid and adults. You should probably stay away from this one because it's kind of dull. Fair enough. Well, from there, we are going to talk about, welcome to the jungle. We got JCVD. <laughs> well, it sounds like a venereal disease. Yes. Well, <laughs> from what I hear, this movie isn't too far off. <laughs> Actually, well, it's not great. <laughs> but you, it's not terrible. You had my interest for like a split second No, there. no, it's actually not terrible. I mean, I know that's faint praise, but there were points I laughed out loud watching this movie. And this is one of the only films where Jean-Claude Van Damme is playing flat out a comedy role. Okay, now He's I'm interested. satirizing himself here. Now, the story here really follows Adam Brody. Sorry. <laughs> playing a guy named Chris, which makes it better in and of itself. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Who's a guy who works at a workplace, and he's like, he's a complete pussy. And like the, the, the office bully, Phil, played by Rob Hubel, steals his idea. And he even goes in to talk to the boss, played by Dennis Haysbert, who autonomically takes the takes Phil's side. Like, I don't believe Phil would do that. Phil's great. You should be more like Phil. But when it turns out that, like, they're taking them all to, like, an island for sort of, like, assertiveness training management seminar run by, you know, a, this ex-military badass played by um, Andy Dick. No, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I was like, dude, don't fucking... <laughs> Just fucking with you. <laughs> it's April Fool's Day, but some shit goes too far. Uh, everything, all roles get reversed. Of course, the, the kicker is that Adam Brody was an Eagle Scout, so he actually knows what he's doing in a survival situation. And the funniest scene in this whole movie is in the trailer, where basically a tiger attacks Jean-Claude Van Damme that, and keeps attacking him. He's like, oh, that's okay. He won't be back. He learned his lesson. And that's like, Whoa! It comes after him again. Like, okay. <laughs> it's a running repeat the joke. It gets funnier each time. <laughs> but um, it's actually got a lot of decent amount of talent in here. K- Christian Schall's pretty funny in here as well. Um, uh, God, what is her name? Uh, Bianca Bree, who right now is uh, – no, that is not who I'm thinking about. I'm sorry. The girl from The Blacklist who plays the lead character on The Blacklist. Whose name is Megan Boone. Sorry. <laughs> she's the love interest for uh, Adam Brody in this. And she's actually very funny and very good in this as well. Problem, ultimately, it's one of those comedies where everybody is completely fucking insane except for the main character, pretty much, and his love interest. So the only people whose sanity even vaguely resembles the real world. And they're constantly walking around going, what the fuck is wrong with everybody? And sure, there is a plot element in here where Phil, who's decided that this is going to turn into Lord of the Flies and he's going to be king of this island paradise, has is feeding everybody Jimson weed <laughs> so that they act like Lord of the Flies people. But it's hard to buy into that type of comedy for me personally. I'm just like, come on, man. Nobody – these people are way – too stupid to be alive. <laughs> are we still talking about Beneath? <laughs> no. No. These are stupider people than that. I don't know. I, there's, there are good laughs in here, and Jean-Claude Van Damme is genuinely funny at points in this. He genuinely made me laugh at points, parodying himself completely in his action persona. Because, of course, it turns out he doesn't really know any of the shit he says he does. Nice. This, <laughs> sounds, this already sounds better than Enemies Closer that we reviewed last week. So, well it's, done, JCVD. It, it actually is... It's one of those, like, oh, it's on Netflix. 
let, you know, I'll give it a watch. Yeah, that wasn't terrible. That was a good way to spend a Sunday afternoon type of movies. You know, you won't be mad you saw it, but nobody's ever going to put this on a shelf with the classics. Gotcha. Well, from there, speaking of classics, I'm glad you brought that up because we're about to talk about Miss 45, which, uh, if you're not familiar with Abel Ferreira, let me, let me describe him to you thusly. Imagine Martin Scorsese went out in 1973 and rolled around in whatever gutter was directly in front of the dingiest porno theater on 42nd Street. You would have Abel Ferrara. It's like a parallel universe where after Taxi Driver, he wanted to just keep making movies like Taxi Driver. Where he became Travis Bickle yeah, and started directing movies as Travis Bickle. It's so funny. Even watching the interview with Abel Ferrara on this, he's like totally Travis Bickle. <laughs> it's like this Brooklyn accent guy. Yo, what the fuck, man? It's the fucking movie. We just made the fucking movie. I don't tell you. Abel <laughs> Ferrara is just a crazy motherfucker. <laughs> and this is one of the seminal sort of, uh, as, as, Horrible as it is to have, (laughs) as horrible as it is to have this genre, but it's one of the similar like uh, rape revenge films. And there were a lot of those in the seventies and early eighties. And then of course, Korea decided to do a bunch of them, you know, more recently. And yeah, well, it's Korean film. Somebody's going to get raped and then murdered. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, but this Miss 45 is sort of the, I guess the female reaction to death wish. I don't really know how else to describe it, but it's, it's about a woman who is mute. And she works, uh, is it, she works in a, uh, like a fashion place. She likes, she works in textiles for a big fashion company. Yeah. She, she basically sews together the clothes for a fashion designer. She is attacked and raped twice. Yeah. Twice in one day. That's a bad day. And it kind of shoves her over the edge to where she starts to take the law into her own hands and try to right this wrong. Now I know. All of this sounds so trashy. Why would anybody ever bother to put it on Blu-ray? Why would you be a fan of the film? Well, I'm a fan of the film because of the gorgeous level of artistry that is brought to the visual aesthetic of what should be a complete exploitation garbage flick. And which, there are so many different ways to interpret what this film actually even is. Is it a feminist film? Is it a reaction against feminism? Is it, what, what is it? And even the copious extras and booklet that comes with this are sort of like, that's kind of the point really is to bring up a discussion point about so many different things. Yeah. The real thing that is going to draw your attention to this movie is the lead actor, Zoe Lund, who renamed herself from Zoe Tamerless to Zoe Lund because she was a little pretentious, but <laughs> <laughs> she was arguably batshit insane. In fact, as the bonus features on here make very clear, but she was one of those insane people that you just are completely drawn to. Yeah. Just incredibly, hauntingly, otherworldly gorgeous with just these giant black saucers of eyes. Incredible acting skill. Really talented. Her performance is haunting. It absolutely is haunting. And some of the things just visually that the movie does that are really... that's just going to stick with you. One of them is is this like Halloween party scene where she's dressed as a nun and has the big-ass gun to boot and just... Man, like that, that whole scene is almost, it's almost Jallo-like the way that they shoot yeah, that. And completely. then there's this great shot in Central Park of her, basically where she's become a manhunter. It's, it's exa- like, this is why I draw the parallel to Death Wish. It's not just about revenge. There is a point, there, like, the, the point that she, the, the path that she takes through her journey after she decides to get revenge is very similar to Paul Kersey's in that at one point she starts going out and looking for scumbags to kill and specifically in Central Park. And there's a shot from overhead where she is being pursued by these three guys and they start to surround her. And she stops on 
this emblem like in the sidewalk, and I don't know why it was there if not for just this moment, but it looks like the chamber of a, a revolver. Yeah. And it's just such an amazing visual. Well, it's really, and this is a very well-filmed movie, uh, and... It's the difference between this and most of the rape revenge films. Most of the rape revenge films are girl gets horribly raped, girl one at a time gets revenge against the end of the people. End of film. Really, it's a literally a revenge film. This is more of a rape, go crazy and start killing film. She's yeah. a spree killer. She's not. It's not a traditional revenge film at at all. And yet. Despite the fact she's clearly completely unbalanced. I mean, she's going and killing guys not just for being rapey, but just for being sexually interested in her at all. Yeah. Uh, despite that, you never are able to not feel sorry for her. I mean, she really is just that confused, just not ready for this life. And the ending is just heartbreaking when it comes. It yeah. really is. There's just the one line she says in the whole film will just tear you apart when it comes. Definitely. And, uh, and I think that might be why the, the difference from the difference between this and something like a rape revenge film where it's like, there's a specific list of people you're getting revenge on and the movie's over. I think it's what makes us feel more like a societal reproach. Like the fact that it isn't just a personal thing for her, it's it's almost like she has to cleanse the city, the society oh, yeah. at large. Like I, I think that's a far more interesting, you know, metaphorically to, to dig into. Yeah, absolutely agree. And once again, let me emphasize that this is the you know one of the draft house re-releases they've been doing lately, and they really did do a, a pretty solid job of putting this one together with a focus on most of the bonus features of really talking about Zoe Lund, who is a tragic case. I mean, she actually went on and co-wrote Bad Lieutenant, like something like 10 years after this, 12 years after this with with Abel Farrar, co-wrote that movie with him. He admired the shit out of her, but also realized she was fucking crazy. (laughs) She was really unpredictable. Um, And she died relatively young. I think she was like in her late 30s um, of complications due to just using drugs heavily her whole Jesus. life, like coke and heroin being really into that stuff. I didn't, yeah, I didn't but know it, that. You watch these extras and uh, two short films that are made specifically about her, Zoe XO and Zoe Rising, and you really, your heart breaks for this obviously incredibly talented woman who just, much like the character in this film, is just not right for this world. You know, she's just this... She doesn't know what to do here. No one is like her. She doesn't know how to react to people. She pulls in inside herself and is this person that's unlike anybody else. She reacts and lashes out against the world in her own way, in real life, differently, obviously, than she did in the film, but in a creative way. And, yeah, fascinating personality that will really add a whole new level of looking at this movie when you realize she... I mean, even Abel Farrar in the interview says, look, this movie would have been nothing without her as she largely was writing it by her performance as we went along. Definitely. Highly recommend you guys check out not only this movie, but this specific release from Draft House Films. Moving on from there, we're going to talk about something we always, always love to talk about, and that is Mystery Science Theater 3000. This time, version volume 29, if I'm reading my Roman numerals correctly. Yeah, yeah, we're one away from XXX. Yeah, <laughs> the filthy Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, this one includes the films Untamed Youth, Hercules and the Captive Women, The Thing That Couldn't Die, and one of my all-time favorite episodes that I'm so happy has finally been released, the Puma Man. Puma Man. Puma Man. Puma Man. Puma Man. It's this weird sort of superhero, like, in the 70s when they were like, well, let's, we still don't know what a superhero movie is. We're going to try to make up this Aztec superhero 
that I mean, I really think the, the movie owes its existence to the greatest American hero because it's very it's a similar setup where it's like this schlub is given these powers he doesn't know what to do with, and he routinely kind of just wafts his way and, and lucks his way into winning battles, and <laughs> and uh, he's so like the effects are so bad, and he's such a klutz that every time he's flying, he's, it's at a weird angle. Yeah, it looks like uh, the. Uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie's dog in Strange Brew, whatever he's flying in there, yeah. where he's clearly just sitting on a table <laughs> and they're blowing a fan at him. <laughs> yeah, it, it's got, it got to the point where there's a theme song that plays whenever he uses his powers, like do, 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 do. And the well, guys you know, would I've sing. I've seen this a few times. Yeah, the guy would, the, uh, the robots would sing, Puma Man, he flies like a moron. <laughs> It's so true. Yeah, we actually got to, you were like insisted we sit down and watch this one together. So really enjoyed that. You know, there's only really one bummer on this whole set. And for me, that's the Hercules film, which is, it's odd that they obviously spent a lot of money on Hercules and the Captive Woman. Because the end of it is like destroying hugely this gigantic set of basically the city of Atlantis. Yeah. Uh, but it's such shit, this movie. It's just awful. And not in the sort of fun to what do, fun to mock sort of way. They spend most of their jokes with sort of homophobia type things because all the guys have their shirts off, which is never really a lot of fun to listen to. And yeah, I'll give uh, the you only that. really funny running joke is, and I hate to admit it, but all the Uranus stuff because sometimes the, it just writes itself. Sometimes we really are just children and we're okay with There's it. There's a point where he goes, the blood from Uranus. I'm like, seriously, you really wrote that without thinking? Come on. Okay. Guys. Come on. But the other two are great on here as well. One, uh, Mamie Van Doren, uh, in a 50s teen exploitation film. Yeah, a movie that, uh, I think one of the guys said it best, like, well, no wonder kids are breaking the law in the 50s if this is what they think prison is. Right. Cause it's like Cool Hand Luke, except that every night's a party. Interestingly, Eddie Cochran played one of the guys, the guys who was in that scene, rock and roll star, but she, this has a distinction of being the first time ever someone sang a rock and roll song in an American film. With oh. Mamie Van Doren, the first song in here, which regularly these convicts who are being forced to work on uh, work on a farm to work off their sentences, even though of course it turns out it's completely corrupt and it's a uh, it's indentured slavery. In their spare time, they do rock and roll stuff. Yeah, you know, so, like you do, like you do. It's like Jailhouse Rock, actually. It's 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 just like for some reason there's a big dance number and no one's required to wear uniforms, <laughs> which is why Mamie Van Doren's sweaters just get tighter and tighter. And tighter. And it is fun, as usually the the, the e- wicked teenager movies are with Mystery Science Theater. Uh, also really great is The Thing That Couldn't Die. Which has the distinction, by the way, of being the film that introduced us to the observers. Yeah, the brain guys. Yeah, The, <laughs> the brain in a pan guys. Yep. The introduction of them as characters. And of course, one of the brain guys became a running character to the end of the show. So It, it made me laugh because they kept referencing the ghost and Mrs. Muir during this episode because the the thing that wouldn't die is like this, this disembodied head that they get dug up that can hypnotize people and it looks totally like the actor who played the ghost in the ghost of Mrs. Mirror. It really does. And it's so silly the way that it like communicates through whispering that we can't hear it and it always has this look on his face like, what the hell is that smell? And just and like and then it'll just mouth things and the big dope was carrying around it's like okay yeah the dope guy was killing me they had yeah. a lot of fun at the expense of the big dumb guy yeah <laughs> but yeah absolutely. this is a really good set uh once again a lot of good extras on here as always are they've started doing this thing recently with these where Joel comes on and introduces the films that that he was that he was originally on which I wish they could get Mike Nelson to do it but I I know that Mike Nelson. You know, it's kind of weird, actually, because Joel was the one who was more mad 
at uh, the guy who actually owns the rights to Mystery Science Theater. I'm forgetting his name right now. The guy who's, who made the deal with Shout Factory ultimately is making most of the money off this. So I was really surprised that Joel had anything to do with these and that Mike had no reason to be upset with. But Mike's had not had barely anything to do with these re-releases. I huh. don't, maybe he's right now just trying to push his Rift Tracks brand Could completely be. and just going like, I, you know, that's one thing. I, I want to just focus on. But I mean, track. haven't haven't we seen things with with Kevin Murphy on here before? Like, yeah. hasn't the sh- so I like he's part of Rift. Well, Tracks, even Nelson's know? been on stuff, but the fact that Joel was willing to come in and do a little introduction for these, but Mike apparently wasn't. I thought was I a little you. odd. Well, so. I, I will tell you this about the special features. One of them really made me want to see uh, and hope, in fact, not only want to see his one man show, Joel's one man show, which I've seen, but I hope that it ends up being in the future a special feature on one of these yeah, sets. Th- there's like a what, like about six and a half minutes, seven minutes, sort of very condensed version of his one man show where he tells about how he got started doing all this, how yeah. how his background led to him being Joel Hodgson, and even the snippet, which is kind of a preview for the one man show was very enlightening about, oh, that's why, oh, I get, okay, so that's why you do this. Like, all this started to fall into place, so I really want to see the whole show. And Puma Man has the distinction of finally giving me the perfect descriptor of Donald Pleasance that I have been aching to find, which is, he looks like an old baby. <laughs> he does indeed. I was like, that's what he is? You nailed it. He's an old baby. Uh... I also like the fact they got Mamie Van Dorn, who's still alive. Yeah. Still, <laughs> and still kicking. Sane, yeah. who comes in and talks for like nine minutes about, uh, her movie and actually very lucidly and entertainingly. So. Definitely. Yeah. Good stuff. This is my pick of the week. Just gonna throw that out there. Fair enough. Moving on from there, one of the weirder releases this week, in my opinion, is The Swimmer, which is from Grindhouse Releasing. Now, when you hear that a film has been released by by Grindhouse, you think, oh, it's probably trashy, there's probably a lot of sex, a lot of violence. There is neither of those things in The Swimmer. The Swimmer is this sort of lost to the ages, night, late 60s drama about Burt Lancaster almost playing this Hemingway-type hero. He's a guy who is... He's in with all of the richest people in in the area, and yet something just feels like he's very friendly with them. He'll show up, he'll have a drink. Oh, he was very, like, laissez-faire. But there's always something that kind of sets him apart from them, and you, you get the sense that he's struggling for something more. So very much a Hemingway hero in that regard. But he decides, he, first of all, the, the movie opens with him running through the woods in his swimsuit and just arriving in the backyard of one of his friends and jumping in the pool. And then his friends come out, oh my gosh, we haven't seen you in forever, how are you? Blah, 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 he's looking down over the valley, all these, the richest families live in this valley, and he realizes that on his way home, every single house that he would hit on his way home has a swimming pool, so he's going to swim, quote-unquote, swim home. He's going to stop at every house and swim in every pool. That's an odd decision. Yes, and throughout probably the first 40 minutes of the movie... You're like, why the fuck is he doing that? What is the point of all of this? And he keeps running across other rich people, some of whom he knows, and they have kind of like, you get the sense that there's a dicey past between them. Some of them he doesn't know at all, and he's just crashing parties. Yeah. And then you get to the end, and you realize, like, what's really going on with him. And it is actually pretty powerful, but it's such, like, the imagery getting up to that point is really bizarre to the point that I think some of it is too artsy or too it's too much of an attempt to be artsy and some of it just comes off as really silly even when you know what they're trying to do it's still like yeah but you don't need 
10 minutes of him running in slow motion through a pony pen and jumping over all the, the hurdles that ho- horses jump over. It's like, okay, this is, this is just silly. But when you actually get to the end of the film, you realize two things. One, that there's a very heartbreaking story at the center of this. And two, that Burt Lancaster's performance is outstanding. And well, he's Burt Lancaster. He's Burt Lancaster, but it's you know it's it seems like a really silly movie up until that point, and I'm actually really glad that I saw it. I mean, it, it gives me a lot to think about. Like it's one of those movies that you won't think much of at first, but once you get to the end and really start thinking about it, it's like wow, there's a lot of really great stuff to the point that I'm like, I kind of want to see this movie remade. Hmm. I want to see some of the fat trimmed out of it, and I want to see a director with real visual chops and storytelling ability to to do a new version of this story. And uh, one of the crazy things about this movie is that director Frank Perry walked off the set before it was done due to disagreements with Burt Lancaster, and they brought in Sidney goddamn Pollock to finish the movie. Huh. I'm like, that's a pretty good backup plan to bring it. And, in fact, the movie's most dramatic and most powerful moment was, in fact, directed by Sidney Pollock. It's this conversation between Burt Lancaster and a former lover kind of in this, in a swimming pool, and his his – you kind of get the sense that he's on his way to a complete nervous breakdown. And that's that's one of the scenes that Pollock came in and directed. And it's very, very obvious. And there's a shit ton of special features on this that goes... Yeah, you know, there are. They talk to Burt Lancaster's daughter. They talk to the first... And there aren't a lot of people either left alive who worked on this or left alive who wanted to talk about this movie. But like the first and, and second assistant directors, uh, it sounds like kind of like, really, that's all you could get. But these two guys have actually gone on and, and worked on a lot of great films. Uh, so they got those guys. They have um, the guy who was Burt Lancaster's swim coach for the movie and Burt Lancaster's daughter just kind of talking about the film. They have original trailers. The original trailers are really bizarre. Nobody really knew what to do with this movie. And I feel like that's why it's kind of a forgotten title. Cult, cult film. It's a cult film because nobody had any idea what the fuck to do with it. I can't believe that amongst the other extras on here, there's a over two and a half hour long making of documentary. Yeah, it's broken up. Like I watched a lot of little segments like it's broken up into and it's, it's man. And, and the original author, John Cheever, who I'm a fan of reading the short story, the swimmer, uh, that was the basis of the, the movie. Base. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Highly recommend this movie. If you've never heard of it, it is well worth a watch. I'm not even saying that you, I'm not saying you'll like it. But this movie is worth a watch You're for sure. It. You might hate it. You very well might. But you need to see it. Yeah. Swim on over. Swim on over. Do a few laps. So that's The Swimmer. And now we're going to talk about Continuum Season 2. Okay. On to TV section of our, our cast. You know, Continuum is Canadian sci-fi. I like which... that you start this stuff like Jack Benny. You know. <laughs> it's Canadian sci-fi series of which the Canadians have been making a lot of sci-fi lately. Some uh, some of which has been great, like Warehouse 13. Some of which has just been okay, like Sanctuary. Some of which has been pretty shitty. But this one is probably the best thing I've seen in terms of just really high quality, not special effects. Because a lot of those other series, you're like, okay, it's well written, but you got to take a pass. You got to just kind of pretend it looks better than it does with the CG. Continuum really looks great. It looks Hollywood quality, movie quality sci-fi at points. Considering how much effects they have to use at points, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, the story uh, starts in the year 2077, and a cop, played by Rachel Nichols, who ends up at the at the execution of this group of terrorists. They they have a trick planned and they zap the whole group of them and quite a few people who are in the room back in time to 2012, uh including the cop who now is separated from her husband and son, 
who has to try. And basically at that point, she's like, well, I don't, it doesn't seem like I can get back in time. So the best I can do is try and stop these guys from fucking with the timeline to stop that future from ever coming to, into play. Cause mm. I want my, I want my son to have been born. Sure. <laughs> uh, that's and, really asking a lot, but fine. And it's, it's a time, it's very much, you know, it's a lot of shows like this. That's about as far as the time travel get, gets. This is very much a time travel show as it's constantly looping and dealing with the side effects of time travel and other people who appeared, some people who appeared then came back 30 years before this and then get, you know, and are, you know, much older in the story. Some of the characters who are young in 2012 are, as we discover, much older and involved in the conspiracy when they get older years from now, or maybe they aren't, maybe they're anti-conspiracy. There's so many mysteries going on in this. It's ultimately very involving. Now, the, the most unfortunate thing is they have that thing where she's, you know, secret ops for CIA or some business like that. I don't even know uh, <laughs> who like in theory, so she can work with a local Vancouver police department uh, who don't ask many questions, unbelievably. And her partner hmm. who it's got that constant like, oh, I always have to hide from my partner when I'm doing the stuff that really needs to be done, which is a really annoying like 80s TV device. Fortunately, this is the season they finally do away with it and go, okay, it's time to tell the partner that what's really going on so we can stop dealing with this running and hiding thing. But uh they brought brought in Nicholas Lee from uh the X-Files, who, uh, what was his name, Crycheck on the X-Files, yeah. to play like the guy who's... who's comes from the higher levels of the police department who knows something's up with this chick and something is wrong and is investigating her. Uh, and the plot's getting a lot thicker. It's still very episodic in some ways. It's far from a perfect show, but it is probably the best running sci-fi show, like currently running show on TV right now, which says more about the lack of quality of some of the others than yeah. it does about the high quality of this. But nonetheless, this is a really fun time. And if you like time travel stuff a lot, this is one you're not going to want to miss. It is really fun. It always has big cliffhangers. Every couple of episodes, there's a, there's a huge, huge game-changing plot twist. Uh, I enjoyed the shit out of the show. And unlike last season, season two actually comes with a lot of extra features on it, which is, well, maybe not a lot, but at least some audio commentaries on every single episode, which is nice. You don't get that usually. And then uh, about 74 minutes of behind the scenes featurettes, which is actually pretty damn remarkable. So yeah, really good. If you're not already watching Continuum, you should be. Right on. Well, from there, we're going to talk about another TV series, which is Veep season two. And guys, I honestly think this is one of the funniest shows on television. I am so in love with with Veep. I think I had described it once as uh, the West Wing and Arrested Development getting into a slap fight every week. Well, it's funny. Did you know this was by uh, the creator of The Thick of It, Armando Iannucci? Uh, I think I've heard that once, but I've never seen The Thick of It. Okay, so. like a British television that was like world-lauded as being one of the funniest political shows <laughs> ever made. Uh, I, I've only seen the movie that was the follow-up to it with James Gandolfini and a couple of Oh, people. in the loop. In the loop. Oh, right, like right, right. The yeah. final episode, basically, of the thick of it. Gotcha. But this is so brilliant with Julia Louis-Dreyfus playing the vice president of the United States, and it just keeps getting funnier. It like really the first does. season, funny as hell. This season had to stop it occasionally because I was laughing so fucking hard. Yeah, and and she's really like – the the like the ebb and flow of the series and like the high points and the peaks and the valleys of what her character has to deal with only provides more fodder for this cast to be on top of their game comedically. And I absolutely one of the best parts about season two is the introduction of a character played by Gary Cole, 
who's sort of this, they call him like a robot. Like he's very much a numbers guy. He's an advisor to the president that does a lot of polls and charting and tracking of various uh, criteria and tries to like the senior strategist, senior strategist who then tries to take this num these numbers and tell people how they should behave. And it really irks Selena. Everybody hates him. Yeah. Like everybody hates him. They're like from the get go. They're like, Oh my God, I fucking hate that guy. He's a robot. Yeah. Which makes for great comedy. It really does. (laughs) And my favorite episode of this season is when they go to Helsinki uh, oh, yeah. When and Dave Foley, Dave Foley. from <laughs> Kids in the Hall plays the, uh, the female prime minister of, of Sweden, Finland, Finland. Finland, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I did the diehard thing, as in Helsinki, Sweden. Well, <laughs> Finland, actually. Anyway, uh, he plays her husband and does something very, uh, uncouth and it becomes sort of a, a running joke throughout that episode. And, all of this while she's dealing with, like, the big thing that she's dealing with is this this hostage crisis that was going on. And she was kind of not really a big part of, but they tried to make it a big part of, like, to get her more visibility. Like, oh, we're going to basically tell people I had more of a role than I did in getting these these students who were held hostage in Uzbekistan back to the States. Well, it turns out one of them was a spy, which endangered the lives of the hostages. It's actually a huge gaffe for the American government. So she has to balance, like, do I admit I wasn't that involved and save my ass, or do I stick to my guns that I was involved? And that makes me, like, you know, a, a incompetent political leader. So um, so that's a lot of stuff she's dealing with throughout the season. And, <coughs> man, they, one of the things they do so well in the show, much like the League, is their creation of brand new and fresh insults for each other. Oh, yeah, constantly. So funny. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the season was involving that, you know, when they're going to deal with the hostages, uh, to, to rescue the hostages, and she can't be in the situation room because she has to deal with some other stuff. So <laughs> she's, like, going in from, from – you can see her on a screen in the background. So she's she's piping into the war room that way. And they choose for the picture – to use to put in the press a picture because the president's jowls show the least uh, where she's on her cell phone. She's checking her phone yeah. during the crisis. And it becomes, as one of the characters says, a meme on the internet. <laughs> oh, no, it's a meme. Oh, it says meme. Yeah, they, they did this like Abbott and Costello thing where she doesn't know what a meme is and they're having to explain yeah, it to a her. Meme-y? Yeah, and then of course, uh, one of my favorite insults is there's a character who he doesn't have a huge part on the show, but he played Gabe on The Office, and he's dating uh, he's dating the character in here who is played by oh my god, I always forget her name, Anne uh, Chlumsky, who was of course in My Anna Girl, Chomsky. Amy Amy Brookheimer, Amy. So the character. So name. this guy is dating Amy, and the character that none of them can can stand, who is uh, Jonah. Who always shows them? It's like I'm from the the West Wing, the president's office, and they all think he's a scumbag. So Amy's boyfriend, uh, the guy from the office, says to him, "Like you are the worst person ever. You are like Frankenstein's monster. If Frankenstein's monster was built entirely out of dead <laughs> that dicks, was, that was my favorite." And it just like, and this is like this character had never really said anything this heinous, and to just drop this on Jonah and walk away, and I was like, that's the point where I had to pause it because I was laughing so, so hard. So funny, <laughs> entirely out of dead dicks. Uh, and Tony Hale, of course, uh, who plays oh, yeah. the the vice president's personal aide, is so. Funny this season. He has his. He actually has a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> who is obnoxious, as you might figure, and kind of crazy in her own right. But he is a rise right this season as he's starting to get really insecure. The vice president doesn't actually like him, and the vice president, who at one point is worried that people are going to abandon her when things look bad for her, has to start putting in extra effort to make everyone feel welcome, including him, which just makes things worse. Yeah, I absolutely love this show, and I think. It's only getting better as it goes along. Oh, yeah. And I can't 
recommend this set any more highly because again, season two is even better than season one and season one was great. Yeah, you should, I mean, I've, I keep, everyone wants to say, oh, this is the best comedy on TV. Oh, this is, you know what? The answer is Veep. I, I think so too. I, I really, I really think that is correct. So moving on from there, we're going to move forward with the past. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, are we still talking about Continuum? Now there's time travel shit. No, sadly, the past does not have any time travel in it. I was disappointed. I was like, oh, sweet. (laughs) (laughs) 2013 French time travel movie. No, no, no. Sad. Uh, This does star uh, the wonderful Berenice Bejo, who you might remember from The Artist as the female love interest from that film. This is what basic, more or less what she did next. Um, I was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the uh, 2013 uh, Cannes Film Festival, uh, along with other various and sundry other things that it was selected for. Uh, it was selected for the Iranian entry for Best Foreign Language Film in the Academy Awards, but it was not did not end up being nominated. But the story here is this is one of those movies that when I say, look, this is really for grown-ups, I don't mean because it's full of fucks and nudity. I mean because it deals with mature situations, and by that I don't mean lots of people having dirty sex. I mean things that adults have to deal with with complicated emotions. Um It's not for everybody, and it is very slow-moving, but ultimately it very much pays off in a strong, if not dour and depressing emotional sense. Uh It follows this character... Named Ahmad, an Iranian man, arrives in France after four years to meet his soon-to-be ex-wife Marie, played by Berenice, uh, and her daughters from the previous marriage even before him. But he was kind of the guy who more or less brought them up, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And she's in a relationship with another guy, another Arab man named Samir, who has a son of his own and whose wife is in a probably-won't-get-out-of-it coma. And all the complications here in here arise that everybody basically is unhappy with the situation and everybody is kind of coming to Ahmad who just came there ultimately to say hi to his, you know, to the, to give a little love to his two like former stepdaughters and to say goodbye to his ex-wife and to sign a divorce paper. But he ends up being sort of thrust in the middle of this incredibly complex emotional situation that's going on. Like I said, nobody's real happy with it. And there's also a very deep, dark secret hanging around the coma wife and what happened. She she went to coma because she – I mean, they said in the beginning she tried to commit suicide and failed. She literally walked into her husband's laundromat and drank a bottle of like Drano basically Oof. right in front of people in there, including her own son. Jesus. <laughs> um and like I said, yeah, it's one of those films you were like, you start, you're watching and like, where is this going? It's just kind of a mod, just kind of wandering around, dealing with these people, finding out somebody's upset, trying his best to fix it, then being yelled at by his ex-wife and her new, her new beau because they don't want him there at all. It's, I don't know, like I said, the best I can say is it's a very adult <laughs> film that, that if you are willing to put in the time and work with it and you're going to get something out of it. But I think only if right from the beginning, this sort of very serious film sounds like it's your type of thing. It really is a good movie. I just don't think it's quite a great movie because it suffers from some pacing issues, um, to be sure. But yeah, if, if more of the mature type of film like this, that talks about real life stuff is your thing, you probably don't listen to digital noise. <laughs> <laughs> That is very true. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about the best of Bogart collection. Now, here's the thing. 
most of the time when you get one of these like best of this actor, best of that actor set, it's like two movies of theirs that are really great and then whatever other shit the company happened to own and you don't really you can't really call it the best of. That does not appear to be the case with this Warner Brothers release, as the four movies in the set are, you know, just Casablanca and uh and the Maltese Falcon and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre and the African Queen. Arguably Bogey's four best movies. Yeah. No, I mean it's really I mean he had a lot of the really great movies, but it's hard to argue with these being, you know, right at the very top of his, his film career. All four of these are not only fantastic and hugely well-received films when they came out, but still regarded as classic and thoroughly enjoyable films today. And the only one in this that I didn't already have in my collection on Blu-ray was The African Queen, which I was really grateful to get because I hadn't seen this in so long. And that one between with an older Humphrey Bogart, who's who's the, a drunk captain of a tramp steamer called the African Queen, uh, who has to basically move, like a, have a forced passenger on him, uh, who's played by Catherine Hepburn. And they, of course, fight viciously with each other until, of course, they fall in love. I have to ask you a personal question. Yeah. Have you ever paid for a tramp steamer yourself? Of course, all the time. Okay. Just wanted to. Oh uh, wait, do you mean like when a hobo shits on your chest? Yeah, yeah. Six Street stuff. It's great. Yeah. Basic Six Street well, stuff. Come on, man. How am I? How are you supposed to have an orgasm? <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of stuff your mother warned you about when she said you shouldn't be listening to digital noise. You probably don't like the past. Is you all probably I'm don't like the past. <laughs> But you should like these movies because, like, old or not, black and white or not, uh, well, they're not all black and white, African queens in color, but uh, they are amazing. Casablanca is still one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, the Maltese Falcon is one of the all-time greatest noir films, just so good, As along with The Treasure of Sierra Madre, just an adventure, noir-y, all anti-heroes, just so much fun. And The African Queen is one of the best Catherine Hepburn films, just, like, this great give and take between the two of them. It's kind of romancing the stone before romancing the stone if you will really great stuff and putting them all together in one package with all of them on blu-ray like this for a discounted price it's the way to go you, you this should be on your wish list or hell you should just go buy it now because like i mean you're just you're gonna love all four of these films you're gonna yeah love the shit out of them and these have all been released individually on blu-ray so just make sure that you don't already have you know i would say if you only have one of them it's still worth it's still worth picking up i'd still say that's Probably a valuable double dip. They can always resell your other one or give it as a gift. There you go. Well, moving on to our last title of the show, which is Wonderwall, which I assume is a movie about the band Oasis. Nope. Damn it. Although that song was indeed inspired by this film. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know this either. What? I thought I knew a lot about the history of rock films, but they're apparently now in, in this day and age of re-releasing of things on Blu-ray, there's a never ending supply of films I've never fucking heard of coming out. This is Shout Factory found this little gem, such as it were, and this is for ultimately the Beatles' complete, completest, uh, as this was George Harrison getting involved. Heavily. The Completals. The Completals, nice. George Harrison getting involved in the production and writing the whole soundtrack for this bizarre drug-addled film. Um, uh, it's short, thankfully, at 85 minutes. The idea here is that uh, an eccentric old scientist, Oscar Collins, played by Jack McGowan, uh he's one of those guys, like, he has to keep note cards in his, his jacket pocket just to remember who his co-workers and what their names are. But he's, like, you know, reclusive and brilliant, what have you. His house is bizarre. All the locations in this movie are bizarre. 
But his next door neighbor is a pop photographer and th- his girlfriend slash model named Penny Lane. You can see where this is going. Hey, played hey, by hey. Jane Birkin. But when one day he gets mad at the noise they're making and throws his clock at the wall, it creates a little chink through the wall and he's able to, it creates like a camera obscura gotcha. where the light comes through and creates like a silhouette on the wall behind him of basically the girl taking her clothes off. And he's like, I'm suddenly interested in something other than science. <laughs> and he starts getting obsessed with the life and, ima- and kind of imagining what else he even can't see that's going on with the life of, you know, these very hip, successful, hippies next door who have one of the most amazing apartments in the history of the entire world. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's lots of nudity and sex, you know, light sex, but you know, nonetheless, ostensibly people fucking. Um, And just the fact that no one at any point comments on how incredibly creepy it is that this guy spends all his time, not only staring through the one hole, but building more holes to watch this girl take her clothes off and have sex. Never, never even brought up or discussed at any point during the length of this film. But it's not one of those type of films. This is not about narrative by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I can't begin to tell you about what this movie is even about, except maybe it's something to do with the grass is always greener. Like he pictures that she has this amazing life, but the truth is it's actually kind of mundane as it turns out. Um, but it's filled with crazy psychedelia and real silliness. There's a series of hallucination dream sequences where there's a guy in a Superman outfit except his super symbols as LSD, (laughs) (laughs) if you will. Um, And, you know, the one thing that that this is really known for is the soundtrack done by George Harrison, the Remo 4, and Eric Clapton, which is very much from the, oh, God, we love Ravi Ravi Shankar period of, of, you know, post-Beatles stuff. And it is good. There's good stuff in here. In fact, this re-edited director's cut, which they have the original theatrical cut on this and the director's cut, uh, throws in a song that originally was cut out at the last minute that ended up being the song that was the, the big pop hit that came out of this movie, strangely enough. I mean, this is one of those, it's a little piece of nostalgia, a little footnote in rock movie history, a cool movie to put on in the background at a party, something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like nobody's really paying attention to it, but every once in a while you look at it and go, what the fuck is going on in this movie? (laughs) (laughs) But they certainly don't fuck around with the extras here either. There's a publicity gallery uh, with a bunch of stuff, publicity texts biographies of the people there's a focus on the film star doing his comic art uh there's a short film it's about 12 minutes long by the director that ultimately led to him getting the deal to make this movie that features the fab four um as a look at a lot of the paintings in the film there's some crazy paintings there's uh something to do with eric clapton a thing with john lennon reading a poem a music video uh outtakes uh an insert booklet that's one of the best ones i've seen for a while just Filled with, I mean, just packed with essays by various different people about the impact of this film at the time, what it ended up leading to. I never even heard of this fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, this is a new one for me. Uh, and like I said, this is far from a great movie. I am not advertising, I am not advocating like, oh, this is for everybody. You're going to love this. You probably won't. But if you're a big fan of this period of, of like, you know, of the psychedelic, the classic 60s psychedelic movie. If you're a big fan of the Beatles and the related people at this time and what they were doing, uh, then yeah, you are going to be interested in this. They put together as great a package as you probably possibly could put together for something like this. But like I said, it really is a minor musical footnote in history. Right on. Well, that is going to do it for the show, but except we still need to do our, uh, giveaway. And earlier we talked about a scene in The Wolf of Wall Street that ended up being one of the funniest moments in comedy in 2013. 
Another movie that represents the height of comedy in 2013 is a little film called This Is The End. And if you haven't had a chance to see it yet, which you really should have by now, but just in case you're still one of the holdouts, we're giving you a chance to watch it because we are giving away uh, a copy on DVD of This Is The End. That is what we're giving away today. So as you may know, all of our giveaways now are sort of creative writing prompts on Twitter. So the first thing you're going to want to do is follow us on Twitter, at oneofusnet. And then what I want you to do is I want you to tweet at us what entertainment phenomena you think will cause the actual apocalypse. Hmm. What is going on now in movies, some trend in TV and music, whatever. Tell us what it is that you think is going to bring about the actual apocalypse. We will pick our or, uh, and hashtag <laughs> that uh, this is the end giveaway. And we will pick our favorite one. And that one person will win a copy on DVD. Please, U.S. residents only. Indeed. Indeed. Well, that's it. That's all we got. We done. We finished. We'll see you next week. We out of here. We gone. We got a drink. Beer. Beer. What do you say? Oh, yeah, there is something to say. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's there's a thing that I say, which is, what is the thing that I always I say? I don't know. It's you're the one yeah, who memorizes it. Do you have the note cards in your pocket no, there? No, I don't. Oh, wait, yeah, now I remember. No release is too big. No release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Also beer. Also beer.